Imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha. I am so happy to be here this morning with Deb, Deborah. <laughs> she is a, an author and a wonderful person. I had the opportunity to read her book, and I thought that just resonates with my audience here on this podcast because so many people, when they lose someone, find themselves in a the position of, okay, now what do I do? I know I went through a lot of what am I going to do when I grow up uh, sort of feelings when after uh, each husband died, since I had two husbands die. And her her book just offers such practical, down-to-earth, sensible advice. And so I thought that there's a, a lot of people in this audience that could get some help here and, and some support. And since this podcast is all about providing you comfort and support, I thought that was Perfect. So aloha, Deb, and uh, if you could kind of introduce yourself and tell us what you're all about and what you have to do with grief and happiness. Yes. So hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So I'm Deb Tella. Um, I am an international bestselling author. I also am a podcast host. I'm an intuitive life coach and Reiki master. Um, I do, I wear a lot of hats and I joke around that I grew up in grief, but it's true. I did. My mom's brother was 19 years old and he died when I was around seven months old. So all of the early years of my life were spent with my mom, my grandma, my grandpa grieving the loss. And it was their second child. It was my grandparents' second child that they had lost. They had four children together and They had my mom first and then they had a baby two years later and he died when he was nine months old. And then they had two more boys and one died when he was 19. And so I spent literally all of my early, early childhood in the cemetery. My grandmother went to the cemetery every day and I lived with her for a long period of time when I was little. And when I look back, you know, when I got to be an adult and I looked back at it's a miracle that they were able to, you know, being a mom, when I think about what they went through, my grandparents and still being able to like put Christmas on or have a smile on their face. And my other uncle that my mom's remaining brother was a child. He was only 10 when my, Hmm. when his brother died. So he was a little kid too. So they had this, they had this full grown woman daughter, and then they had this little guy and then me. And so that has always just been a natural part of life for me. I really haven't been scared of it. I had a near death experience in 2005. That was quite amazing. And, you know, grief is just a natural part of life. It's not fun, but even on the saddest days of your life, even on the worst days of your life, there is, you still can have joy. Joy lives inside of us. It is innate. It's um, happiness is like the weather, right? It can get ruined, 
but joy is something that just lives deep inside of us. And you can access that at any time. So even like on the days when I lost my grandmother or I lost my cousin, Laura, who was 21, I was 24 at the time when she died and she was like a sister to me, or my brother-in-law died uh, the year before my husband and I got married. Even on those horrible, horrible days, I was still able to feel joy, joy that I had them in my life, joy that they were such big parts of my life and how lucky I was to know love like that. That's just, it's beautiful. And I think it's something that we often don't look at the the big picture context because we, we think of, oh, somebody died and all you think about is that, but, but it goes beyond that. That joy really is still in your heart. You it know? is. I wasn't joyful that they left. That's that they right. Here, right. I was just joyful for the time that they had been here. That's right. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Can you tell us about that near-death experience? Sure, sure. So in 2005, I was 36 years old. I had three little kids and I had heel spurs and plantar fasciitis. And if anyone knows or if anybody's experienced that, it is excruciatingly painful. I'm not the kind of person who's quick to take medicine for anything. And, but I was in so, so, so much pain that I was taking um, a prescription pain reliever. It was being recalled off of the market. So my doctor switched me to an over-the-counter pain reliever and told me to take double the dose, which would equal if it was prescription strength. Within two weeks of taking this over-the-counter pain reliever, I had a massive GI hemorrhage and bled to death. Wow. Came out of nowhere. I went to sleep, healthy, fit. I was a spinning instructor at the time, busy mom with three little kids. And I woke up dying. It was horrible. That part was horrible. I realized I had gotten up in the middle of the night and this is a little TMI, but I had like a bellyache. I had to go to the bathroom. And when I went to the bathroom, there was blood. And I was like, that's weird. Didn't think anything of it though. Went back to sleep, happened again. And the next time I woke up, I was on the floor of my bathroom. And then the next time I woke up, I was in the floor of my shower. I had fallen through the shower doors. And when I woke up in the bottom of the shower, I realized, oh my God, I'm passing out. So I threw the shower on to revive myself. My husband had fallen asleep on the sofa in the family room. And I made it to like the top of the steps. And I went to call his name. And all that came out was like a whisper. And I was like, oh, where's my voice? Where is my voice? And my oldest son heard me and I said, go get daddy. And he went and he got my husband. And I went and I sat back in the bottom of the shower because I figured if I was going to, if this blood was going to keep happening, at least let me be in there. And my husband, you know, was like, where are you? And I'm looking for me, comes in the bathroom and my bedroom is small. My bathroom is small. It wasn't like as big. And he came in and he starts screaming for my son to get the, this, the cordless phone. Like it wasn't even like the cell phone back then, get the cordless phone. And I'm like, who are you calling? He's like, 911, you're blue. Called my mom, called my best friend who lives right near us, called 911. Long story short, they take me out in the ambulance. They bring me to the emergency room. And while I was in the emergency room, they put me in like a private room, which was very odd in the emergency department. 
And the doctor came in at one point and said to me, we can't monitor your heart in here. So we need to move you. And then after you spend a little time in this other part of the emergency uh, department, we're going to put you in ICU. They're getting a room ready in ICU. And I sat up in bed and said, I'm not going to ICU. I have to go home. I'm busy. I have to go home. I can't go to stay here. And I threw up and I passed out. And what my husband said happened was that I came back around. They got me out of bed and started to walk me out of the room and that I passed out again and that they scooped me up, sent him to the waiting room and just took me away. What I know happened was I threw up, I passed out. I was in the light and I was, and I knew it like that. You hear about it. Oh, people are in the light. And I was just white light everywhere. And I was like, oh snap, I'm in the light. (laughs) And I didn't have that experience where I saw my body. You know, it wasn't like I was hovering over my body. I was just like fully in this light. And my, this was 2005 and my cousin, Laura had passed in 92 and she was behind my left shoulder and we called each other, bud. And I said, Oh, bud. And I went to turn my body to the left to hug her. And when I went to turn, she pushed my shoulder and she just kept pushing my shoulder and pushing my left shoulder. And she wouldn't let me turn to hug her. And I kept saying, stop it, stop it. Let me hug you. Let me hug you. She didn't speak, but she was in full physical form pushing me until she pushed me so hard that I woke up in bed to nurse saying, lay down. And then she went from being in full physical form to like a little ball of energy, like Tinkerbell flying all around. And I could feel her all over me, like whoosh, 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 flying by. And I could feel the the air and the movement of her looking at everything and looking at me and scanning the room and scanning me. And they brought my husband back. And I said, Jeff, do you see Laura? And he's like, Deb, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. And I'm like, you don't see her? You don't see her? And I'm very high strung and my husband's very calm. And he was freaking out and he's going, stop it, stop it, stop it. Shut up, shut up, shut up. And he doesn't talk to me like that, right? And he's like, they're going to put you in a straitjacket. Stop it. They bring me up to intensive care and she races in front of me. And I just keep saying to him, what is she doing? She doesn't know about any of this stuff. Where is she going? And when I got into intensive care, she was everywhere in this little ball of energy, checking everything. And the nurse is trying to talk to me. And I'm saying to my husband, what is she doing? And he's like, stop it. Pay attention to the nurse. Things calm down. And it's just the two of us in the room and Laura's there. And I say to him, oh my God, look at your dad and brother. And my father-in-law who passed in 2000 and my brother-in-law who passed in 91 were sitting in full physical form on the windowsill in my room. And that was on a Saturday. And from Saturday until Wednesday night, which is when they finally knew that I was going to be okay. Anytime my husband was in the room, my father-in-law and brother-in-law were in the room. But Laura stayed from Saturday until Wednesday night. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. And you're here today. And I'm here today. That's what an amazing story. I, you know, I know those things happen. I, I was a, a nurse in the emergency room for quite mm-hmm. a while and you know, I saw things, you know, you, you, sure. there's, there's a fine veil between here and wherever else. And that's mm-hmm. amazing. 
you seem so joyful now. So it seems like that experience was okay and you were grateful for it, it sounds like. I wasn't grateful for it at the time because it took me like a year to recover, to fully recover. Mm. I had four blood transfusions in less than 24 hours. So I lost almost all the blood in my body. And so if you've ever been anemic, if you've ever needed a transfusion, right? It's not, it takes a while for you to get better. And this was like almost a whole year until I was physically fully back to myself. And I was really freaked out like that my body turned on me. And while I was in the hospital, I had to have a colonoscopy and an endoscopy. So what they determined was just that the over-the-counter medicine caused the GI bleed. And I had diverticula on my colon, which we all get as we age. I had a little bit more than a 36-year-old should have, but not a big deal. I didn't have any polyps, anything like that. I had to have a repeat colonoscopy in five years when I was 41 years old. So the average person doesn't have a colonoscopy until they're 50. When I had the colonoscopy at 41, I had precancerous polyps. Wow. So that saved me from colon cancer because by the time, if I hadn't you know, experienced any trouble, that would have turned to colon cancer. So they were able to get them out and I'm screened every five years. Wow. Mm-hmm. So then I got really grateful oh, yeah. <laughs> at that five-year mark. And I was like, this was a gift. It was annoying. Like the, the whole seeing Laura and my father-in-law and brother-in-law, that was so great. But the other part of the recovery and feeling like my body turned on me was not great until that five-year mark. And I was like, oh, I get it. This was a gift. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so amazing. You know, I didn't have that experience, but I had a, a surgery and hemorrhaged. And when I got out of the surgery, they knew I needed blood transfusions. The first one was fine. I started the second one and I started convulsing because I was reacting to something that was in that transfusion. So they weren't able to to give me enough blood. And so for for a while, uh, actually, I, I discovered later it was probably two weeks. I really wasn't that aware of what was going on in the real world, so to speak. Yes. Yes. And it it was odd to be someplace else. And I think because I was so incredibly low on on blood that it was just amazing that I survived through it. But I I don't remember a whole lot of it. And I I don't think I've even really talked to people about this before um, because it, it just seemed like such an unreal experience as it was happening. But boy, I felt different when I I came back around. It was like the whole world changed. Everything was kind of in perspective. Mm -hmm. And I I realized things that were important and things that weren't. And I think that that grief brings that to us sometimes too, that that before you, you have a loss you're not really paying attention to what really is important in your life and what isn't. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. When you, you know, are speaking about, you know, not really like realizing what was going on in the real world, when they, the first transfusion that they gave me, and it was like, as soon as I got into intensive care and I was saying, oh, I don't want that blood, I'm okay. 
And they're like, put your arm out. You have to get the transfusion. And I'm like, um, but whose blood is it? Call my mom. My mom will donate. And then I'll take my mom's. And my husband's like, put your arm out. And I was like, well, I need to know who's it. Is. And they're like, you're never going to know. Put your arm out. So then after I was you know, home for a few days and I was just like sobbing because I couldn't focus on anything. Like I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't read, you know, I couldn't even like hold a full conversation. And no one told me that that's just part of being anemic. Mm -hmm. So I just kept saying, whose blood did they give me? Whose blood did they give me? Like, what, what is wrong with me? I can't, I can't focus on anything. What is happening to me? And it was maybe like a month or two later that I was like, had enough, I could focus enough to Google side effects of transfusions. And I'm like, oh, I'm anemic. I'm all good. Meanwhile, I was taking iron, but mm-hmm. you know, no one said to me, this is a side effect. Yeah. Anemia. I, I dealt with a, a lot of that and it, uh, it was why I had surgery to start off with. So it just seemed to, to get worse after that. And it, your head is just not fully with you when you're really anemic. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I, I felt like I was doing a lot of observing what was going on as opposed to being a participant in it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, you get me. <laughs> I totally get you. Totally. Wow. Well, I am so glad you've survived that. Uh, what an experience. And I, I think it's important to talk about things like this because people don't really realize if you've never been exposed to something like that, then you think you're crazy in some parts or other people may think you're a little bit crazy because your brain requires the oxygen that the blood brings to it to be able to function. And when it doesn't get enough, it's not like your everyday thought patterns that are are going on. It's, it's just different. Yes. So well, that's that was quite a conversation and interesting experience to think about and, and talk about. So I, I want to talk a little bit about your book because I was just so impressed by it. I, I happened to be visiting with a friend while I was reading it, and she was at a point in her life where she was trying to decide what she was going to do. She had a wonderful career. She'd gone to, to college for, you, you really had to have a, a big education to be doing what she was doing, and it was very important work. But it had gotten to the point that it, it didn't feed her anymore. You know, she wasn't, she, she felt like a clerk in, instead of like who she actually uh, was with the brilliance that she had. And she was just trying to figure out what she was going to do. And so I was reading and I go, oh, listen to this. Listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I could see it was really helping. And we had really interesting conversations based on what you have in your book. So can, can you tell us a bit about your book? Sure. And that's fantastic. I love that you just told me that. Thank you. So my book is, um, is this job my jam, the guide for grownups who still don't know what they want to do or what they want to be. It's nice if I know the title of my own book. (laughs) (laughs) And in the book, you know, I talk all about how to figure out what is your jam? What do you want to do? What is worth your time doing? What lights you up? And I take people through um, like my signature program, which is called Inch. And just because something's small doesn't mean it's not powerful. And, you know, get a mosquito bite, 
And you know the power of something small or let a baby keep you up all night and you know how much power something small has. So I chose INCH because number one, the acronym worked. And number two, because small, consistent, aligned actions lead to massive results and they lessen overwhelm. And they kind of like help guarantee that you're going to see the thing through, right? When we're not, we're not overly stressing ourselves. And it just makes such a difference to just do little things, little bite-sized things every day. And I'm all about how can I make things as easy as possible? That's for myself and then for my clients. And so INCH, the I stands for identify. So say, you know, the goal is you have to, that you want to find a job, that's your jam. So, you know, you need to identify your goal, your problem, what you think the problem is. Because oftentimes what people say the problem is, isn't really the problem. And you got to do some digging, right? To really uncover what it is. We identify our feelings and how we want to feel. And then we go into N, which is non-negotiable. And our non-negotiables are our values and our priorities. And I know, you know, throughout my life, I just did jobs because that's what came up or somebody recommended me and I'm like, oh, I'll figure it out. I'll do that. Never taking the time to say, okay, does this align with my values? Does this, does this employer align with my values? Does this workplace and what are my priorities? So there was a period of time where I worked almost every single night and weekend for over three years. Mm. So being in charge of my time is one of my top work priorities. And then when we go into change, the C is for change and how to conquer that change. And what are all the things that come up, right? When we're trying to make a change, they are our mindset, our habits, our routines, the people we surround ourselves with, and how can we like bulletproof ourselves and how can we set goals? And I talk about smart goals in the book and, you know, oh my gosh, the gentleman who came up with smart goals, it was a group of them. Their names just went out of my mind, but you know, they're specific, they're measurable, they're achievable, they're realistic and they're timely. And so how can you set goals that are smart so that you can do them a little bit at a time every day and then you start to see your progress, it increases your confidence. And then what happens is we need to celebrate that. And that H stands for hallelujah or, you know, celebration. I just use the H to make it work. And when we celebrate, it kind of locks it into our nervous system. And I, you know, compare celebrating as a practice, just like yoga is a practice or meditation or journaling is a practice. The more we do it, the more our bodies and nervous systems get used to it. And then we start to cheer ourselves on right? Because when we get stuck in doing task after task after task, I liken it to like a jumbled up ball of Christmas lights Mm. and there's no beginning and there's no end. And you just look at it and you're like, I am never unraveling this. So when you go from task to task to task, you're in a constant task loop. We need to stop and celebrate even, you know, the tiny thing. I celebrate everything. And you don't have to, you know, spend money to celebrate. It doesn't, you don't have to make like a humongous deal out of it. There are times, you know, where I will high five myself in the mirror. And if you know Mel Robbins, she has a great new book out, The High Five Habit. Mm -hmm. Um, I will pat myself on the back. Happy dancing is my main form of celebrating. 
I really save the buy myself something special for the huge wins, like publishing my book, you know, things like that. Other than that, you know, it could be like going for a walk, keeping a journal of all your wins, sharing it with a friend, all little things like that, going to get ice cream. It's so important. Absolutely. I, I find that too, that I have done so many different things in my life. I, I was raised with that thing that you're going to get married when you're 19 to a husband that you'll have children with, that you stay together for more than 50 years, and he has one job forever, and you take care of the kids. You know, that, that was just how it was when I was growing up. That's what everybody did. And so I assumed that I was going to be following that path too. And I was so surprised when my life didn't turn out that way. And I knew that I'd made a commitment that I wasn't going to do anything as far as work that I didn't really enjoy doing. I I just felt like life was too short to not feel value in, in what you were doing. But I kept finding (laughs) different things that brought me that joy and value. And I'm glad I did because I had lots of different kinds of experiences. And I have stuck with teaching writing longer than anything else. But I did other things at the same time. I'm doing other things at the same time as I I did that because I can see the joy in lots of, of different places. But after Ron died, my last husband who died, I've had two that died. And after Ron died, I thought, okay, I'm at a point in my life where I'm not doing all those things that I used to do. I do still teach writing for the university part-time, but that's part-time. And it's not, you know, my whole life. Mm -hmm. So I really had to do some thinking about what am I going to do now when I grow up (laughs) at the age I was at this point. You'd think I would have figured it out and could base it on all the things that I had done before. But I started writing. And the more I wrote, the more I discovered what I could be doing. And I created a whole different path for me, a whole different world by exploring my thoughts and and feelings about what I was doing. And I'm I'm so happy that I did that and that I'm doing it now. And I realized that all those other things I did in my lifetime all gave me different help along the way to get to the point where I am now, where I can use all those things that I learned before. So as, as you're talking about finding what to do now, and I think lots of people dealing with loss are in that, that boat of it's like, okay, I've been through this, now what do I do? That what, what you do and how you say it, uh, the advice that you give really helps people to figure out that they, they can do this too. What, what would you say to someone who's just at the point uh, in dealing with grief that they're realizing, okay, now I've got to get, get a hold of myself and figure out what it is that it's important for me to do. What would be your, your first advice to them? First, I would say, you know, take a look at yourself and give yourself a break because we're so hard on ourselves and we get so in our heads and we get snarky and, you know, the negative self-talk starts and just, you know, give yourself a break. You've been through a lot. And acknowledge that and let yourself feel your feelings. Don't fight them so much. When we keep trying to push them away and push them away, they just keep coming up, right? When my grandmother died, I didn't, I wouldn't let myself grieve. And I almost had a nervous breakdown. And I was like, oh, I actually have to let myself feel this in order to be okay. And it was awful, but I did it. 
And we need to, you know, acknowledge, okay, this doesn't feel fun. This doesn't feel juicy and delicious, but this is life. I have to feel this right now and I'm going to be okay. And then just start to look at things in your life that light you up. And, you know, in the book I talk about, not everybody has the luxury of being able to quit their job and go do this new thing, right? Like they think that they want to do something, but that's, it's so important to try things. Maybe you can volunteer, maybe you can shadow somebody, maybe you can interview somebody who's doing what you think so that you can really gauge if this is something that you want to do. And having hobbies is so important because maybe it's not your job that's your jam, but your job is paying all your bills and more. It's giving you, you know, medical benefits. It's giving you all these other things, but maybe it's your hobby that is your jam. And that's the thing that lights you up. Do those things. Don't get so busy. What's that quote? Like, don't get so busy making a living that you don't live your life. I know I messed that up, but you know, the gist. I get the gist. Yeah. Yes. So really give yourself a break and just take little steps, feel your feelings and start trying some things out and think about when, you know, you were a kid, what did you like to do? What, what do people always tell you you're good at? What do people come to you for? Did you ever read the book, The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks? Mm -mm. That Mm. book is fabulous. And he talks about things like the zone of incompetency. So things that we are so not good at, right? So that would be like brain surgery. Okay, I'm incompetent at brain surgery. Then there's like your zone of competency. Uh, Dishes, I can wash some dishes, right? And then your zone of excellence. I'm an excellent cook. And then your zone of genius. And your zone of genius is what makes you you. And it's that, that little flavor of thing that you have, right? So my zone of genius is reading people and being able to feel energy and being able to share energy, right? And when I was a little kid, I loved to play dolls and I loved to, um, my sister and my cousins were always performing and putting on shows, but I would direct and like set everything up. And I always wanted to know how people thought and felt and what made them tick and what drove them. And I always knew when one of them was cheating, when we played a game, like I just could know and feel, I could see it in their faces or the way that they held their bodies, all different little things. Did I ever think that that could be a job when I grew up? But that's totally my job. So cool. (laughs) It is so cool. Yeah. So start to look at things that you did or that you love to do. And when's the last time you did them, you know, play more, enjoy yourself. Not everything has to be your job. Mm -hmm. Not everything has to be your job. And you don't have to um, explain what you do either to everybody. No is a complete answer. It's a complete sentence. That's right. That's right. Uh, Sometimes we feel like we're supposed to, that we have have to justify our actions. Yes. And you don't. You you really don't. You don't. You you Mm -hmm. do what you want to do because it's right for you, whatever Mm -hmm. that is and however that works. Mm-hmm. I know uh, when I've found myself in the position of trying to figure out what I was going to do most recently, I was writing a lot because I'm, I am a writer. I teach writing. I, I think writing, that's just kind of how I operate. And as I di- was discovering different things that I was writing that I thought, boy, 
other people who are dealing with loss, if they knew how to write like this, that could help them too. Yes. So I had to figure out, okay, how do I get the message to them in particular? And we had just lived here on Maui for two years before Ron died. And so I, I had met some people, but I didn't know that many people. And I certainly didn't know anybody who was dealing with loss. So that where am I going to find them? So I set up a meetup group and invited total strangers <laughs> to my house to come and write together uh, about their grief. And it was so incredibly successful. We formed great bonds between the, the people that showed up and they had all different kinds of loss. I was thinking since I was a widow that it would be all widows that showed up and it wasn't. And, and that was interesting because we did share the commonality of the things that happened to people with dealing with loss. And, and that, was, that was the spark that led me to all the rest of the, the things that I'm doing now, to the part of why I wrote the book, to the creation of um, the Grief and Happiness Alliance, which is a, a group that meets every Sunday um, on Zoom. And mm-hmm. we do writing exercises, we learn happiness practices, and we spend time talking to each other to develop uh, relationships and, and have, have friends that are also dealing with loss. And it's so exciting to have, have developed that. And then I did a pilot program first because I wanted to make sure that, that it wasn't just when I was a kid, they used to call them Emily's crazy ideas because I was always coming up with something to do. And I thought, I don't want this to be another one of Emily's crazy ideas. So I got a group of people together and we went through the program and I showed them the process and what the whole thing was about. And at the end, they all said, you absolutely do this. This is one of the members said, this is an idea whose time has come. And I listened to her. And so that's what we're doing. But my one thing was I I didn't want to charge people for this kind of help. It just didn't seem appropriate. And they said, so don't. We'll set up a nonprofit organization that can support this work. And then we can even go beyond that and find other things that we can do to help people who are dealing with loss. And so that's that's where we are right now. And it is so exciting. And if somebody would have told me that that was what I was going to do or that was what was going to come up, I wouldn't have even been able to conceive it because it was so foreign from anything I'd done before or anything that I'd heard anybody else doing about. But by allowing myself the inspiration to come in and to act on it, we've developed something kind of kind of wonderful. And I, I think with the people that you, you talk about that are trying to figure out, okay, now what do I do? Mm-hmm. Just be open really explore your, your feelings. And I recommend highly doing that in writing and then see where that leads and don't judge yourself in the process. Yes. Letting go of that judgment. What you've been able to create is so beautiful. Oh. It's so that it, that's, it's just beautiful. People don't want to talk about loss or their grief, especially like you said, when, you know, you didn't know people near you who were mm-hmm. experiencing that and, you know, or, even, which I find funny, like even people who have had loss, like they don't want to bring up somebody else's loss. Like it's mm-hmm. going to make them cry. So what if you cry? Like, yeah. it's okay. Like there's no sign of weakness because you cried. It means you love. That's great. You know? So to create a community where people feel safe and valued and seen and held in that, that's incredible. Thank you. I'm, I'm just so incredibly excited about the, the whole process that, that's uh, that's really happening 
and it's really making a difference. And because it's on Zoom, people from all over the world can participate. And that's one thing with, with COVID is, and in a way, I feel like the, the world has shrunk because I'm, I'm being interviewed on podcasts all over the world. And so I'm in contact with people with different cultures, different ideas, and we have the most fascinating conversations. And that, that leads to so much growth and, and inspiration to me. With, oh, I could do that or I could do that, you know, and yes. it's, it's just, uh, it's exciting. I mean, look, you're in Maui. I'm outside of Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're having a great conversation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, this this has just been delightful. I didn't actually plan on talking quite this long, but this has <laughs> been such a great conversation with you. I could talk to you for all day, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about your book. Where can people get your book? And how can they be in contact with you for whatever you have to give them? Sure. Thank you. So um, they can actually get a free PDF version of my book on my website, which my website is DebraAtella.com. It is available for purchase on Amazon. You can follow me on Instagram at DebraAtella. And then I also on Facebook, I host a large group of women called the sisterhood of what next, because I love to collaborate and I love to connect people. And we do a lot of that in there. Oh, that's so exciting. See, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think we're kindred spirits here. (laughs) Yes. And then they also could listen to my podcast, a tell like it is. Yes. I love that. I love this world of podcasts and and getting to meet people and getting to discover things that you might not have even thought about before that can really change your life. Yes. So this, this is a great place to be. Now, all the things that Deborah just told us about will be in the show notes so that you can just click on the link and get what you want to. And I highly recommend her book. I just enjoyed reading it so much. Uh, sometimes it seems like you get in, into a book and it's like, okay, first you do this, then you do this. And it just, uh, I don't usually get all the way through those books, but I read all the way through this one rather quickly because it was just, it's entertaining and inspiring. And I know that you'll love it. So uh, get that, that book and read it and uh, stay in touch with Deborah because she's, she's got a lot she can offer you. And I, I'm very impressed. So Emily, thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. This was a wonderful conversation. Oh, you're welcome. I'm I'm so pleased to have had the conversation. It's it's really great. And it's nice to see people that, you know, mutually we want to change the world and in a positive way. And I think that's really good and can really help, especially people dealing with loss to see that there's, there is positivity out there for you to have. Absolutely. Not all doom and gloom and sad. Uh, find find the joy in your life and spend some time there. Yes. So thank you so much, Deborah. And I'll uh, be seeing my listeners again next week when we come back to you with the Grief and Happiness podcast. Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode 